That's Genesis 18, verses 1 to 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sayers of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? they asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. There is the, uh, the sheer volume of Christmas films. I'll leave you to judge whether they're any good. That seems to come on our screens. The Christmas film is a strange genre. It can be the, the comedy variety. It can be the sentimental variety. Uh, and it strikes me as I was flicking through the, uh, the planner this week, just how many of them there are. And when you think about how many of them there are, there's also how many of them and how they portray angels and God. When you come to the Christmas film, there's a fair few that obviously have Santa Claus. No spoilers, but he's not real. Sorry if that uh, burst any bubbles out there. Um, there was a whimper. Um, a number of films have angels in them. This mystical messenger that arrives to fulfill a Christmas wish. A messenger that's black or white, male or female, it doesn't matter, but it's portrayed by Hollywood to come as an intermediary, as a messenger from, from God to a needy person or a needy family. There's lots of films like that. There are other films where God is uh, he's kind of remote. If there's the films where angels are close, they've ditched the wings, but they've come to help the needy family or the needy individual, there's another bunch of Christmas films where God is... God is described with a, with a heavenly voice, with a, a twinkle of stardust, where magic can happen. Heavenly magic can fall from heaven to earth. Dreams can come true. And he's portrayed, he's portrayed as Santa Claus in many, many films from Hollywood. It strikes me that Hollywood has a great problem putting together something that the Bible never divides. That is, God is holy. He is other. He is 
uh, majestic and powerful, but he also draws close through messengers. He is infinite, but he's also intimate. He's far away. He's different. He's wholly other, as people have said in a past century. But he also comes near and comes close. Abraham could testify to that. If you flick back to Genesis chapter 15, in the book that we're looking at, Genesis 15, just a few chapters back, God appears in the most unique, majestic, dreadful, awe-filled, awesome way. He appears in a unique event as a smoking firepot. It's darkness, it's dread, it's awe, it's majesty, it's power. It's unique. But then, in this chapter that Emily read to us, God comes close. God is gentle. His majesty is pushed to one side. He comes in a form that's not, it's not wow-able. It's not majestic. It, it looks kind of normal. It says in verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham. It says in verse 10, then the Lord said. But in between verses 2 to 9, it's a lot of reported speech. They said this, they said that. And Abraham welcomes these visitors as if they were ordinary people. It's really interesting. God is not majestic and powerful in this sense, in this chapter. That's chapter 15. Here he comes in a very unassuming and a gentle way. Look at verse 2 and 3. Many people say that Abraham knows from the beginning that he's meeting with God. Although the narrator says, verse 1, the Lord appeared, Abraham doesn't know that. Verse 2 and 3, he, he hurries to prepare a meal. He gets re ready. He, he gets prepared. He bows down, verse 3. He prepares a meal. But it's not clear to me and to many people from reading this passage that, that Abraham's aware that they're divine at all. Not until verse 10, when it says, then the Lord said. It's the first time that God speaks. Abraham's just being a good Bedouin. He's just showing hospitality. He's just welcoming these people who look not extraordinary into his tent or into his uh, modern traditional loft-converted house, if it was in modern language. But then it says, the Lord, in verse 10. And at that point, it would have dawned on him who Abraham was speaking to. Years and years ago, if you've not been with the story in the last few weeks, God made a promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to make your family so great, it's going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore when you walk down on the beach. I'm going to give you a son, and from that son will come a nation, and from that nation will become a saviour, a saviour for the whole world and anyone who trusts him. But the problem is, they're in their 90s. They're knocking on a bit. The bus passes a distant memory. That's in their 60s. But as far as Abraham's concerned, he's still supposed to keep on living as if God is going to keep his word. And Sarah too. She's supposed to be holding on to that promise. But no one else would have known about this. And they sure as anything wouldn't want to share because it sounds so ridiculous. They're in their 90s. They stopped having sex a long time ago. My daughter is in the room. I'm sorry to her to have to hear this. They lost energy for those sort of things a long time ago. They barely can make strength to make a cup of tea in the morning. And here in verse 14, 
God says to Abraham, I'm going to come back to you next year. And by that time, you will have had a son. They're in their 90s. But not only did they stop having sex a long time ago, if you know chapter 16 from last week, there's a lot more going on beneath the surface than that. Abraham sees in verse 10 the only person who, who he would welcome into his tent and who would know about the promise is the Lord Almighty himself. And so the Lord says, I will return to you, verse 10, about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. But why does God come? He's already met with Abraham in chapter 15. He's already met with Hagar in chapter 16. God has come in chapter 18, not to meet with Abraham, but to meet with Sarah. He's pursuing her, verse 9. Where is Sarah? She's in the tent. God is not so much in this chapter coming to say the promise again. That's happened in chapter 12, chapter 15 of Genesis. He doesn't just want to uh, give a miraculous child to this old couple who are getting on a bit. He could do that without them having to conceive naturally. God doesn't just want to give them a miraculous child. He wants to give them not just new birth in the family. He wants to give them a new marriage. There's more going on here than just childbirth. He wants to establish Sarah's faith. And two questions came up into my mind, so there's two questions I'm going to share with you, is why did God come and how does he come? Look at verse 10 again. Why does God come? Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself. Now verse 12 is tricky. After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? The Hebrew says, are you kidding me? That's my paraphrase. I've always read that sentence to say, am I really going to have this baby in my arms? I thought those days were, were decades ago. And I'm barren. My time for having a child is well over. I'm past my sell-by date. And the great shame that she would feel because of that. But as I've dug a bit deeper, verse 12 actually is talking not about the pleasure of holding a child. It's talking about sexual pleasure. This is the word for sexual pleasure in verse 12. And right away, this goes back to chapter 16 of Genesis. And Abraham and Sarah are saying, hang on, we stopped having sex a long time ago. And the reason being because we're alienated. We're not even talking. And you're asking me to have sex with my husband, with Abraham? Forget it. We're old, we're worn out. And there's a lot of gap between us at the moment. They're in their 90s. But they've got broken hearts. They've got shattered dreams. They've tried by their own means to have a child through Hagar that we looked at last week. And Sarah would have felt the great shame of not having a child. It would have been your worth, your reputation. They would have been your pension plan. They would have been your security in the ancient Near East. So there's this great alienation between the two of them. It's not just about having sex. Because God wants to give them a new marriage, not just a new life. One year from now, I'm going to come back and you will have a child. 
But my first thing I want to address is you need to stop talking to each other. You need to start relating to each other. You need to forgive one another. And you will have a child. That's why this passage is here. But how? How's it going to happen? That's one thing you learn if you learn from C.S. Lewis anything. And that is no one gets into Narnia the same way. When you go through the wardrobe, either you'll get into Narnia or you'll get a mouthful of splinters and a bloody nose. You see, everyone gets to Narnia a different way. And the same thing could be said of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham meets God in his awesome dreadfulness and power. And Sarah meets God in the gentlest of ways. Look at the promise of verse 13 that is given. And look at her response. She laughs. Are you serious? Are you kidding me? Why did Sarah laugh? God asks. Now, he knows everything. So there's a purpose behind the question. Look at verse 14 as Sarah responds. Sarah, the reason you're laughing, God says, is because you think this is too hard for me. Another way of saying that is, you think what I'm saying to you, what I'm promising to you will happen. You think it's too wonderful. You think it's too wonderful to happen. Is anything too wonderful for me to do for you? Do you think it's beyond my capability, Sarah, for me to give you a child even in your old age? I know how old you are. Your problem, Sarah, is you don't see my wonderfulness. That's another way of putting it. I mean, what's wrong with her laugh? Uh, a distant generation will remember this wonderful film. If you've not seen it, it will be on at Christmas. It's Mary Poppins. In Mary Poppins, there is the brilliant song, You Love to Laugh. I Love to Laugh. Loud and clear. Some people laugh through their noses. Some people laugh through their teeth. All the different ways that people can laugh. And there's a Uncle Albert, and he's floating off the ground with helium. He's got the uh, laughing fits. There are many different ways to laugh, says Uncle Albert. But do you know what? There's actually only two ways to laugh, I think. There's the cynical laugh of hopelessness, and there's the laughter that comes from hopefulness and joy. And here is Sarah, and she's laughing not out of hopefulness. She is hopeless. <coughs> she is old. This is the cynical laughter that says, when someone has cancer, well, it's all right. If the cancer doesn't get me here, it will get me there. It's that kind of hopeless laughter as you look to the future. And here is Sarah laughing a hopeless laugh. That's why she's saying, verse 13, Will you really, do you really think I can have a child now? That's why she denies that she laughs later on in the chapter as well. And God is saying, I promise you, Sarah, I will turn your hopeless laugh into a laugh of hopefulness. It will happen. Is anything too wonderful for me? One of the things when you become a Christian is that you realize that the gospel is an invitation to you to wonder. It's an invitation to wonder. Here's the difference between someone who's a Christian and someone who's not yet a Christian, who's a religious person, a moral person. If you ask a moral person, are you a Christian, they may say yes. And then you can say how or why are you a Christian. They may say, well, because I chose to be. I was brought up in a home where I was taken to church. That's, that's why I'm a Christian. But there's no joy. There's no wonder. There's no delight. You ask a Christian 
are you a Christian? And they'll say, yes, but you wouldn't believe where I've come from. You wouldn't believe the person I was. You wouldn't believe what God has done as he rescued me. There's wonder, there's delight in the heart of a Christian that cannot, that will never be there in someone who's not yet a Christian. One of the best moments of Christianity explored when we watched a video that explained the gospel is that somebody at the end of it said one word, wow. That's the experience that we should have when you understand the gospel for the first time. You should say, wow. But the trouble is there's so much in this life, scientific evidence that is remarkable, but never removes the fingertips of the creator. That uh, many things that can act like sand in our eye, if we've got uh, contact lenses or a stone in our shoe, we've all got shoes, life can just suck you out of joy. And the gospel is a story, a true story of wonder and joy that God says to Sarah, don't think that anything is too wonderful, too difficult for me. You've lost your wonder. Someone put it like this. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? There it is. It's the wonder of the gospel. Is anything too wonderful for me? When was the last time, Christian friend, that you wondered at the gospel? When was the last time it brought you to a tear? When was the last time it put a smile on your face? Or is life just too hard and it's robbed you of joy? The gospel is an invitation to wonder. And uh, notice how the story ends, Genesis 21. God was gracious and he did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in this old age? God has turned hopelessness into hopefulness, into full wombs and full arms. And so what do you call a son like that? You call him Isaac. And what does that mean? Laughter. Laughter. Who would have thought it? Is anything too hard for God? No. Is anything too wonderful for God? No. Here are two applications. That's the end of that part of the story. Here's number one. The gospel is an invitation to wonder. C.S. Lewis again tells this great story about children and mud pies. He says, just imagine a child, they're making mud pies in the back garden. They're putting muck from one truck and one container to another. They've got no idea as the parent comes along and says to them, I'm going to take you to the beach. Let's get in the car. Let's go down the A23. Let's go to Worthing for the morning. Let's go to Brighton. Well, not Brighton because there's pebbles there, but let's go to somewhere with decent sand. Let's go to Bournemouth. Let's go to Sandbanks. I don't want to go there. I want to stay here with my mud. They've got no conception about the greatness and the joy and the fun that's to be had there at the beach. The beach is too wonderful for a child who's never seen the sea. Friends, if you're not yet a Christian, the trouble with the gospel for you, I guarantee it, is not that it's too hard. It's not hard to understand. But grace is very, very offensive. It seems too good to be true. But it's true. The gospel is not hard. But it is free. Because Christ pays the penalty. 
and pays the price. But there's so much in our life that robs us of wonder. One minister put it like this. You can tell your children a story. You can tell them the story of Beauty and the Beast on a Sunday afternoon. You can tell them Sleeping Beauty, and they will marvel at it. They will say, don't put the book down. Let's get to the end. Don't stop the film. I want to see the end of it. And one of the reasons little children have so much fun as they hear the story, as they watch it, as they hear it on an audio book, is that their hearts are readily and easily filled with wonder. Therefore, they go around and everything in life is an adventure. But as you get older, that gets harder and harder to find. Starbucks had it a few years ago. Create wonder, share joy. It was coffee. I mean, coffee's good, but come on. Everything in this world, the secular mind, the struggles of life are there and they will rob you of joy. But the gospel is a gospel of joy and truly is wonderful. Because if you understand the gospel, beasts become beauties. Cinderella is true. Humble people are exalted. Proud people are brought low. All those great stories are true in the gospel. That's where they get the ideas from. And so verse 13, God is so gentle as he comes to Sarah and says, you laughed. No, I didn't, says God. At that point, God could, like Gandalf the Grey, become Gandalf the White and bellow. Who do you think? But he doesn't. He remains gentle. He's a counsellor. He pursues her. Yes, you did laugh. I wanted you to see that you laugh because you're disbelieving my greatness. I want you to see your disbelief. I want you to see your lack of wonder. He confronts her with the truth. And he replaces her hopelessness with a joy that is hope-filled. Here's the second invitation, more briefly. Fruitfulness. The implication of this story is wonder and fruitfulness. Real fruitfulness. In Mark 3, Jesus is surrounded by people. He's surrounded by people who are not his own family. And Mark tells us, that people confront Jesus with this accusation. Do you know your mother and your brothers and your sisters are waiting for you and they're outside? In other words, Jesus, wait till you get home, you're in trouble. And Jesus looks around and he says something so radical, it's hard to get a handle on it. He says, who are my mother? Who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Who's my sisters? Who's my father? Who are they? And then he looks around at the people in the room in whose lives his ministry is bearing fruit. And he says, this is my family. This is my mother. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. The gospel is an invitation to wonder at what God has done. But the gospel is also an invitation to be engaged in real fruitfulness in ministry. These two chapters we've looked at, Genesis 16, Genesis 18, the story of Hagar. 16, the story of Sarah. Genesis 18. These two women, Paul picks up in Galatians chapter 4 and says there are signs here of fruitfulness in the gospel. Hagar, she uh, represents the fertile woman, people with ability, people with their own righteousness, you could say. And then you've got Abraham and Sarah. They trusted not God, but they trusted human ability. We can do this by ourselves. We can get Hagar involved. They doubted God's provision, and then God pursues Sarah in Genesis 18. And finally, when they put their trust in his grace, and they get a new marriage, 
One year later, they get a new child. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, when you trust God like Abraham and Sarah did in Genesis 18, you will be even more fruitful than you were with your shorthanded ways with Hagar. Who are your children? Who is your family? It's an invitation to real fruitfulness. What do I mean? This is not just for women. This is a gospel challenge for Christians. Who are the people you are investing with? Who in the next generation do you long to see more filled with faith that they go on further than you? They risk more for God and for the gospel than you. We think our wealth is bank accounts. We think our wealth is our pension. We think wealth is our house or our gym membership or our family. And the Bible talks about wealth in a very different way. Who are you investing in? Here's someone that invested in 10,000 children. His name was George Muller. George Muller in the 19th century in Bristol was a Christian man. He set up orphanages, as many as he could. He set up a network of orphanages. And every morning they'd start with prayer. Every morning there'd be Bible reading. And he fed 10,000 children, I think, by the end of his life. 10,000 children. What about Gladys Aylward, that five-foot-one pocket rocket who went all the way to China by herself? A lone woman making this incredibly dangerous journey, vulnerable in the 1930s. She adopted 100 children, had none of her own. 10,100. And then there's the life of Anthony Ashley Copper. He became Lord Shaftesbury. He was in charge of reforming schools. He was the one who uh, sought to help the poor working class. And where on earth did he get the resources and the value to do that? He was a lord, right? So he had loads of money. But he was uh, completely apart from his parents. He was neglected as a child. But there was one woman who cared for one young boy. Her name was Maria Mills, his housekeeper. I've never heard of her till this week. And this is what is said about her. Lord Shaftesbury learnt from Maria Mills the openness of God to prayer at all times, the utter trustworthiness of the Bible, the comfort of the cross. Without Maria Mills to mother him, his spirit may well have been broken by his own parents cold indifference, and by the miseries of his early school days. 10,101. The gospel is an invitation to wonder at what God has done. The gospel is an invitation for real fruitfulness. <laughs> that friends will be costly, it will require sacrifice, it will be difficult, it requires long-term trust and obedience. Will you do it for the next generation? Come with your problems. Come to me, says Jesus, and I will make you fruitful. It's a promise to Abraham and Sarah, 90 years old. This is the gospel according to Sarah, and it made Sarah laugh. Let's pray.